us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development across our state. Hosted by me, Jeff Rent, and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Best-selling author, attorney, and speaker, Kwame Christian is the director of the American Negotiation Institute and a respected voice in the field of negotiation and conflict resolution. Christian has conducted workshops throughout North America and abroad and is a highly sought-after national keynote speaker. Host of the world's most popular negotiation podcast, Negotiate Anything, Kwame is dedicated to empowering professionals through the art and science of negotiation and persuasion. Downloaded nearly 3 million times, Negotiate Anything has a dedicated and growing following with listeners in more than 180 countries. And did we mention Kwame also is the author of the Amazon bestselling book, Finding Confidence in Conflict, How to Negotiate Anything and Live Your Best Life. Please welcome to Mississippi Prospects, Kwame Christian. Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And of course, you're no stranger to podcasting. You host uh the most popular negotiation podcast available. Tell me a little bit about that first. Yeah, so it's called Negotiate Anything. We are, we just hit 3 million downloads uh, last month, which is really exciting. And uh, it's we're at five episodes per week. And so our goal is to produce more negotiation content than anybody out there, but doing it in a way that's approachable, excitable, exciting and fun, right? Because if we're not having fun, then we know the audience isn't having fun either. So it's been a really fun journey. Um, five years into the game at, at this point with the podcast and it's still growing, going strong. Wow. That's in, very impressive because I know how much work goes into production and keeping the content fresh. You, you said though, uh, negotiating and fun. Yes. <laughs> and to you that, I mean, this, you seem to eat, sleep, breathe negotiation. What to you is the definition of negotiation. So the definition that we use is anytime you're in a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something, you're negotiating. And so it's hard to go 24 hours without negotiating (laughs) if you're interacting with people. And so when you think about your life, you'll recognize that the people with whom we negotiate the most are the people who are closest to us. So family, friends, those type of things. And for us, we recognize that if you think about negotiation like as, as a skill, it's very limited. But we think about it as a life philosophy. We filter every single human interaction through this philosophy of negotiation. Then it helps us to be a lot more intentional about the way that we interact with everybody. Like you said, you do it almost from the moment you wake up. You're talking about the interactions even at the most basic level. You have children, for example. Yeah. And so how do you how do those skills transfer from negotiating with your children or your spouse to the boardroom. Yeah. So what's interesting is that it's the same fundamental skills, just different tones. And you have to bring that authenticity in different ways. So for instance, I'm a lawyer, right? I can't bring my lawyer tone home. I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> okay. And I, I'm, I'm a father of a five-year-old. I can't bring that tone to defend my clients. That'd be weird, <laughs> right? But the same psychologies at play, just it's going to be filtered through different cultural and um, circumstantial uh, situations, right? So for instance, with the way that I approach negotiations. My goal is to keep the other side talking significantly more than me. And so I do that by asking great questions. I parent the exact same way because when I think about parenting, I want to make sure that I'm empowering my children with the ability to make good decisions because I know once I go away, 
a lot, in a lot of ways, you as a parent are going to be their internal voice. And I don't want my internal voice directing them in a, in a way that causes pushback. I want to be able to ask them insightful questions that help them to get to the right decision themselves. Then you bring that to the negotiation table in a higher level negotiation. There's a lot of adversarial um, mentalities that take part in this, in this uh, field of negotiation, which can be problematic. And so what I've recognized is that it's kind of like Newton's law of physics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Every point has an equal and opposite counterpoint. And so if I make direct points all the time over and over and over again, it invites that resistance. They're just going to hit me back with counterpoints. But if I slow down and ask an insightful question, then it helps them to move in my direction while at the same time taking ownership because they're not saying, oh yeah, Kwame bullied me into this situation. It's like, oh yeah, I, I started to think about it differently and I adjusted my position and they take ownership over, over it. Do you think people have been influenced by what they've seen portrayed, you know, in on television, you know, boardroom negotiations there that are always it's full contact or in the movies uh, or read in books where it's a blood sport? But it doesn't have to be, does it? Exactly. And the answer is yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so think about it. So think about the way the news is right now. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's um, it, it, it's it's funny. If you look at the business model and the philosophy behind pro wrestling, it's the exact same thing because you have the heel, the villain, and then you have the good guy, right? There always has to be that antagonistic relationship. In the news, you also have the Democrat versus the Republican. You have the person for and against this issue. And what do they do? They don't have a reasonable dialogue. The Republican doesn't say, you know what? I'm a Democrat now. The Democrat doesn't say, you know what? I'm a Republican now. They don't do that. That's not their role. And so they're designed to be adversarial. You're seeing it even in sports too. We can't even have people talk about a a sports game. They have to be bickering the whole time. And so the media is constantly um, modeling bad conversational behavior. And so what we do then is we see these people that we admire approaching conversations in this way. And then we do the exact same thing. And usually when people aren't coming to our side, it's not because of a lack of information. There's a difference between being right and being persuasive. That's an art. The persuasive part is an art. And if you're just relying on arguments and data and facts and analytics to persuade people, you're going to keep running into the same problems and blaming other people for your failures. You said something a few moments ago, and it was about asking great questions. An example, I guess, uh, you know, good question versus bad question Mm -hmm. uh, in the art of negotiation. So I like open-ended questions. I want questions that get people to elaborate, get them to think and and talk more. Um, I kind of play a game in, in my everyday life. And so my goal is to hear at least one time per day, wow, that's a great question. And, and that pause is an important part of it. That pause is important because I want to ask a question that gets them to think about something from a different perspective or approach it in a, a way that they haven't considered or generate brand new thoughts in front of me, because that shows me that I'm expanding their perspective. And a lot of times, especially when it comes to persuasion, it's not necessarily that people are diametrically opposed, it's that they're only seeing things from one perspective. And if you ask a great question, you can help people to see a bigger picture without telling them that they're wrong <laughs> in the process. And so that, that's really what I like to do. I like to ask open-ended questions, who, what, where, when, how, tell me more about this, help me to understand that, and just put the spotlight completely on them. Them. I completely suspend my agenda until I give them an opportunity to feel comfortable and share information. And you left out the why. Exactly. Yes. Because in why? 
<laughs> because in an adversarial type of conversation or where there's high levels of emotions or pressure, um, it's more likely for questions that start with why to be judged as judgmental. So it might be a completely legitimate question, might be completely legit. But since they're in a highly emotional state, they're triggered. They're going to say, you know what? I bet Kwame's asking that question because he disagrees with me. What a jerk. <laughs> right. And then now they get defensive. So I want to be able to ask that, that same question. I could still get to the same goal by changing it to a what or how question, not in terms of why are you approaching it this way? Ooh, that seems kind of harsh, but what led to that decision or how did you approach this problem or solving this problem? Something like that. That can still get me to the same answer, but I'm dodging those those potential landmines along the way. I was fortunate enough to get to hear you speak recently. We're down at the Beauvage Hotel in Biloxi for the MEDC 2021 Summer Conference. And you are a keynote speaker today, and you talked about compassionate curiosity framework. I'd like for you to share with people who are listening what that means, because you were just talking about emotions and how important that is. It's probably you in your talk, you said probably the most important thing to manage. Let's go through the three points of this framework. Yeah. And so a lot of these conversations fail early on. They don't even get to a point where you could have an opportunity to be productive because of that high level of emotionality. So managing emotions is going to be a critical part of the process. So it's a simple three-part framework because if it's more than three, people probably won't remember it. And so step one, acknowledge and validate emotions. Step two, get curious with compassion. And step three, joint problem solving. And it helps you to know what to say and when to say it for maximum impact. Emotions play such an important role and it's human nature to get defensive, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially when you know you're in a negotiation, how do you disarm those emotions? How do you either from your personal perspective, control your own, or, you know, is it a manipulation of the person that you're negotiating with if you're controlling their emotions or Mm -hmm. attempting to? When it comes to the distinction between um, persuasion and manipulation, it comes down to intent. Right. And so essentially it's the exact same thing. We're trying to change people's hearts and minds, change the way they see this, the situation, but we're doing it for a positive intent, not with malicious intent. So that's the thing. Um, and now when it comes to managing the emotions, managing your own emotions is going to be critical because, um, you don't think clearly when you're emotional. Shocker, right? And so (laughs) a lot of times people focus so much on managing other people's emotions that they miss the fact that they need to work really hard on managing their own in the process. Um, But then when it comes to managing other people's emotions, just simply saying it sounds like or it seems like as we're labeling the emotions does wonders. And therapists have been doing this for decades. And the reason why it works is because it triggers a part of the brain that has higher level of thinking. So the frontal lobe versus the amygdala. The amygdala is the thing that triggers these emotions. That's where all emotions come from, positive and negative. So if you just say, no, it sounds like this has been a really frustrating situation, or it it seems like this had a significant impact on you and your team, something like that, it'll give them an opportunity to vent and decompress and share. And then you just, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be very tempted to jump in and defend yourself and correct what they say. And that is the biggest mistake you can make at that time. You just sit back and say, no, that makes sense. Tell me more. And you give them an opportunity to vent, then they calm down. You expand a little on uh, get curious with compassion. Yes. Yeah. Is that an empathy position? I would it is. It's all based on empathy. And when I use empathy, I'm talking about empathy in terms of understanding how people see, think, 
and feel about the situation. How do they see the situation? What do they think about it? How do they feel about it? That's critical. So this whole thing is a, a very um, empathic approach. Um, now, when I use the term compassion in these conversations, I'm really talking about focusing on the, the dignity of the other person and their right to share information and also doing so with a compassionate tone so you don't sound like a jerk. <laughs> because <laughs> if you sound like a jerk, then they get emotional again. And now you're back to step one and you just worked really hard to get them unemotional, right? So um, I think it's really important to, to monitor your tone and also do some homework because you might think you're monitoring your tone, but you might not be, you know, and, and this, I mean, this still happens to me. How do you get the feedback or who do you get the feedback from to tell you that your tone is not what you think it is? Yeah. So I wouldn't ask opposing counsel this <laughs> after a negotiation. Hey buddy, you know, we just sparred for a bid. How did I sound? That would be kind of weird. But we have, like I said, we're negotiating the most with the people around us. So I do this with my team, like my staff, when we have a difficult conversation, I will seriously ask them after the fact, how did I do? What could I do better? How was my performance? How was my tone? And I'll take that feedback. Same with my family, because the majority of the people that we negotiate with are, are literally on our team. They are on our team. And so once we get past the conversation, I'll ask for feedback so I can know how to get better because um, I'm realizing a lot of times there are going to be certain conversations where my tone sounds differently if I'm emotional. And um, if I'm emotional with opposing counsel, I can get um, the term that was used was cold and calculated. And I, and I said, I'm just trying not to make a mistake. I wow. just, I'm just trying not to make a mistake. That's, that's how it came off. Oh, okay. I need to adjust that. I thought I was being compassionate by holding back. Very intriguing. And so, again, you will be surprised at what other people think, because I was trying intentionally to be compassionate in, in the way that I was approaching it and be very mindful of the words. But in being so mindful of my words and choosing them appropriately, it sounded as though I was calculated and callous. And so you will be surprised a lot of times with, with how you're coming off. So I'm, I'm still growing in this too. <laughs> how much does ego play a role in that? Ego's everywhere. Ego's everything. And so here's the thing with ego, ego gets a bad rap because whenever we talk about ego in these conversations, it, it comes out in a negative term, yeah. right? And so ego is kind of like salt in baking. So you make cakes, you make cookies, you need to add salt. But if you add too much salt, now you have a salty cake. Nobody wants that, right? That's not good. <laughs> and so it's about having the right amount of ego because ego is the thing that allows you to stand up for yourself and advocate for what you want and need. That's important. It's critical for assertiveness. But then when you have an unchecked ego, then what happens is you perceive slights where they may not be. And then also remember, it's perceived slights. It's only a slight if you register it as a slight, right? And so I think for me, my understanding of psychology helps to diminish the ego because I would take things personally if they if they it seemed like they were skeptical of what I was saying or they would attack me or something like that. I would take it personally. But when I recognized, oh, after I study psychology, I realized this, these are just people doing people things. It would be weird if they weren't insulting me <laughs> in this moment. It's not about me. Oh, OK. Now now I can perform at a higher level because I'm not taking it personally. Now, the third point was joint problem solving. Yes, this is where it gets easy. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, this is just brainstorming, right? Because we've taken the time to work through the difficult emotions. Now we've taken the time to ask questions and we've gathered information. So there's no emotional issue that's creating a barrier to success. You have enough information to make a good decision. Now let's work together collaboratively to figure out what it will take to make this happen. Is it harder? Uh, it seems like our society right now is rather is incredibly polarized. Um and you're either right or wrong. There's no middle ground. Has that made your job, uh, you know, as mediating and negotiating more challenging? Let's approach that answer two different ways. It has been fantastic for business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's great for business. I can see that. Um, but it, yes, in terms of conversations, for sure. And um, I think th there's a great book called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And in a lot of ways, especially with the younger generation, we are we're raising people to believe the worst in other people, right? And so when you think about, and my, my degree is in psychology, so this resonated strongly with me. Um, when you think about um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is demonstrated to be one of the best forms of therapy in terms of success rate, um, one of the things that they say is that you have to start to identify problematic beliefs and replace them with the beliefs that are both truthful and helpful. Right. And a lot of times what we're doing with the younger generation and, and more and more with the media, what we're doing is we're replacing positive and truthful beliefs with beliefs that are negative and unhelpful. Hey, assume the worst from this person or this kind of person. If somebody approaches you in this way, it, it means this. It doesn't always. How do you know? <laughs> you, you don't know. And so one of the things that I mentioned in my book is the, the benefit of the benefit of the doubt. So the benefit of the benefit of the doubt, it is not a gift you give to other people. It's a gift that you give to yourself because the reality is you don't know. You don't know. But a lot of times in these ambiguous situations, we always interpret it in the worst possible way, which might not be true, is unlikely to be true. But we act as if it is true. And then we respond aggressively. And then the person sees, wow, they were very aggressive to me. I'm going to respond in kind. And then you get that response and you say, ha, I knew they were a jerk. And so we're creating these self-fulfilling prophecies. And so my, my assumption is that everybody is doing the very, very, very best they can, given their beliefs and their skill set at this time. That's it. And so for me now in these conversations, even when it is incredibly vitriolic and passionate and they're mad, I say, this person is trying their best. That's okay. And my job here is to help them to do better. So it helps me to stay productive during the conversation. And so I think when it comes to the, 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 the times that we're in with things being so divisive and polarized, we, we need to adopt a, more, a healthier mindset. And when you have a proper mindset, proper behaviors often follow. Well, it seems like we have gravitated toward absolutes. And our positions are absolute right now. And you know, I told you my background in meteorology. I'm a weatherman. I don't speak in absolutes. <laughs> That's why we use words. You know, I've got a chance of you know showers today, or a thirty percent chance of showers today. And from what you just said, that seems like replacing those absolutes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to you talked about uh, the three mistakes when asking questions. What are those three mistakes? Yep. So mistake number one is we're asking people to lie to us. 
asking people right. to lie. <laughs> you got to expand on that. <laughs> and so it sounds weird because nobody says, oh, yeah, lie to me. That, that, I love that. Right. Yeah. Nobody does that. But oftentimes we display our bias in the way that we ask questions. And so, for instance, the example I gave is if you have a kid, hey, are you going to finish your homework tonight? No kid has ever in the history of humanity <laughs> said, no, dad, not going to finish my homework tonight, actually. Right. That's not that's not normal. Right. So we we have to change the way that we ask questions because we're demonstrating the answer that we want and you're not going to get the truth. You're going to get what's what they would perceive to be the right answer. I'm using air quotes for the podcast. Listeners. <laughs> the right answer. Right. So we have to start asking better questions because better questions will lead to better answers. What are the next two mistakes? The next two, the next mistake is number one, we don't use silence effectively. And so this is huge. And I know you can appreciate this as a, as a reporter. Um, the, the silence is a critical part of the process. People are thinking, people are contemplating whether or not they, they should adjust their position. This is huge. And it takes a lot of deep thought. If you ask a great question, people are going to wrestle with some significant issues right before your eyes. And if you jump in, and interrupt that silence prematurely, you've taken what could have been a very deep thought process and turned it into a shallow th- thought process. And maybe the adjustment you needed them to make would have happened in three to five more seconds. But in the heat of a difficult conversation, three to five seconds seems like an eternity. And so we have to sit back and let silence do the work. And that natural inclination to fill the silence they end up volunteering a lot more and you are able to glean more information out of that. Absolutely. I'm often shocked at the things people are willing to say, <laughs> you know, just to avoid silence, because as uncomfortable it is for you, it's similarly uncomfortable for them. And so you play a game essentially of who can manage that tension the best. And then the person who breaks, they don't often break in terms of sharing information or saying something because it is the best strategy. They do it to alleviate the tension that they're feeling in the moment. And the final mistake? Final mistake is asking questions that are too complicated. So you want to simplify your questions. So the distinction is single issue questions versus compound issue questions. So an example from economic development would be how quickly can you get this plant up and running and how many people could you hire by this date? Right. Two Questions that are very important, Mm -hmm. legitimate questions. But when you ask two questions in one go, what ends up happening is that people are either going to one, answer the question that's more favorable (laughs) to them, or even if they're trying their best, they'll probably start off answering a question really thoroughly, like the first part. And then they say, wow, I've been taking, I've been talking for a long time and now I'm going to curtail the answer to the second one. And so again, we're, we're limiting the depth of the, the questions that we can ask by bundling them together. You have to be patient and tease these things out separately so you can get clearer, deeper information. Could you just turn it around and ask them, what's your timeline? Exactly. That's a beautiful question. And I think a lot of times going back to what you said about ego, it's really hard because the ego will show itself in interesting ways. And a lot of times, especially when you're approaching it like I do, where I'm trying to get the other side to talk more than me, sometimes the way that we show that we're intelligent is by showing how much we know by sharing information. I'm going to ramble for a bit just so they know I'm smart. (laughs) Not not for a strategic purpose or anything. I'm just going to ramble. And now they're listening to your ramble and then you finish off with a a clunky question. They're like, "Uh, should I just agree with your ramble or do you want me to answer this question? And so the simpler the question, the easier it is for them to answer. And so that takes a lot of, um, of humility 
to sit back and ask a simple question. And sometimes the best questions are the dumbest questions too, right? They seem dumb. It's like, why would you ask me um, <laughs> the, uh, about how, why do I want more money? See, in, in, as a mediator, how I would always start off my mediations, I would start off with a dumb question. And so think about it. Sometimes people come to my mediations because they've been in litigation for, for years. I've seen the whole case file. I've seen the, 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 the pleadings and, and the uh, memos from the different attorneys. I know why they're here. But the, the question I asked at the beginning of every mediation was, so how did we get here? How did we get here? And some people would stop and be like, what, what do you mean? Didn't you read the file? I'm like, I read the file, but I want to hear it from you. Right. And because they will answer the question with information that is not contained within the file. And so for me, if I wanted to put my ego into it, I would start off with a five minute recitation of the file to prove that I, t that I took the time to read it. But instead I'm going to pretend almost like I don't know anything. How do we get here? Okay. Check your ego at the door. Exactly. You talked about listening and you know, Obviously, it's incredibly important to listen, but you also said to prove. How do you prove that you've been listening? Yes, this is something that people often miss, right? Because listening is hard enough <laughs> to do, especially when you're heated. And so um, they, they often stop there. But you need to prove that you're listening because listening is beneficial not only for you, because, yeah, I get information. I listened. I, I am now more knowledgeable. Thank you for the information. But also people have a deep psychological need to be understood. And in that moment, they can't get it for themselves. They need it from you. That's the thing. Listening is the thing that you can do for them that they can't do for themselves in this moment. They're looking to get it from you and they need to be, they need to know, they, they need to know that you're listening and they're going to be looking for signals to know that you're listening. Simplest way to do it is by summarizing using the empathy loop. And so say, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying X, Y, Z, is that correct? And so I want to summarize, again, this is another game that I play. I want to summarize so well that the person says, wow, wow, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what, thank you, yes, right? I want them to be surprised <laughs> at how well I, I know what they just said. And I'm gonna use keywords that they say. If they say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pissed off, I'm not gonna say, yeah, you're a little bit upset. They're not a little bit upset, they're pissed off, they said that. So <laughs> I'm gonna reflect that understanding back to them. That's a, a validation and a positive reinforcement. Exactly. Exactly. I see you and I accept you for who you are as you are. What's the final goal in a negotiation? Uh, is it to win? It is to put yourself in the best position for success. That's the best you can do. Right. And I think about it in terms of um, with when it comes to winning, because I'm a competitive guy. And, um, and so I have to I have to rebrand winning. I have to think about it in a different way. And so for me, I, th I think I can win every single negotiation. And so that, that sounds preposterous, but we have to figure out what winning means. So for me, I'm winning if I do two things. Number one, I put myself in the best position for success because not all deals are meant to be made. I want to be able to look back and say, yeah, I asked the right questions. I said the right things at the right time. For instance, in law, I mean, my client just might have the liability. My client might have just messed up completely on camera. <laughs> so there's, there's only so much I can do. I mean, yeah. You know, I'm not Rumpelstiltskin here, right? I can't just make gold out of nothing. Um, and so I, all I want to do is the best that I can do. The next thing is it's winning if you're getting better. 
I think uh, about everything as practice. This presentation I did, that's practice. This interview, that's practice. The next negotiation I have, that's practice. Because my assumption is that as my career develops, the the keynotes, the podcasts, and the negotiations that I have, they're going to increase in in um, significance as time goes on. So every negotiation that I have is a practice opportunity. So I treat myself like my own coach. I look back and I say, all right, what are the things that I did poorly? Okay, I want to not do those things again, right? My goal is to not make the same mistake twice. And then I think, what are the things that I did well? Great, let's try and replicate that for the next time. So every single time you negotiate, you're putting yourself in uh, in a position to get better by using the right skills at the right time and then reviewing it so you can improve for the next one. And if both parties walk away and feel pleased or happy with what just occurred. That's good. That's best best case scenario. But at the same time, I recognize it's not always possible. And if I think about my goal solely in terms of whether or not they feel good, then that could lead me to make inappropriate compromises. And so what I think is I need to take the time to understand what my goals are very clearly. Like what are the interests that I need to protect my my need to haves versus want to haves versus like bright lines can't do those type of things. And I want to center on those things while at the same time focusing on the relationship as well because I need to have a strong working relationship. Like we don't need to be best friends, but I, I need you to at least respect me through the process. You might not like what I said, but I want you to respect the approach that I took. That that would be my goal. And understanding that sometimes they, they walk away a little bit unhappy, I, I understand that's a, that's a reality, but if they can at least respect the process, then I think I did my job. From the family room to the boardroom, helping us negotiate just a little better. Kwame Christian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by MWB Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.